welcome to the very first episode of Coral, Kelp, and Community. Since we are launching on International Whale Shark Day, we had to start episode one, talking about sharks. I am thrilled to be speaking with Rachel Bustamante. She is an ocean science and policy analyst at the Earth Law Center, and she just published a fantastic paper called Nature's Right to Conserve Sharks. So let's talk a little bit about what an ocean science and policy analyst does. Yeah, definitely happy to. Um, I think one way I like to try and explain it is trying to examine a problem or a threat facing the ocean and really looking at all of the intersections and perspectives and viewpoints causing that issue, like really getting to the root causes. So that means analyzing ethics, law, science, conservation, you get to do a little bit of everything and have to understand a little bit of everything. And then based on that, developing law and policy solutions that can most effectively improve that issue. Um, so for example, like if I were to think really broadly about how humans are killing over 100 million sharks a year, I would look at this from all the different lenses. So science, you know, we know there's substantial evidence that number is way too high for shark populations to thrive. So if I dig deeper, I would be wondering, you know, is this from direct fishing? Is it bycatch from other fisheries and really get into that? And then you go to law and policy. How are they protected under the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Flora and Fauna, known as CITES? How can we, you know, get those 184 countries, I think it is, to uphold the commitments they've made? And then look at the ethics, you know, how does our media portray them? If we don't value them, then we're not going to protect them. And, and also considering local fishers or communities who actually may rely on shark fishing as their, you know, subsidence. So there's a lot of issues that, you know, just go into one threat or one major problem. So it's looking at all those different perspectives. That's why I love it. <laughs> it's kind of fun. I mean, we need we need all of these perspectives to make, you know, good good decisions and by good I mean like well-informed and trying to, you know, really balance all of the issues at play because there's never generally a silver bullet. Um, and that is a lot of what you talk about in your paper. It's this great combination of like shark, conver shark, blah, 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 shark conservation, uh, the rights of nature. And, and I, I really enjoyed how like on the second page, you know, after the abstract, you're like, okay, everybody strap in for a perspective <laughs> shift right you said it like really nicely and academically like this exploration might lead us to reconsider our assumptions about how we interact with the environment how we value sharks and we're probably going to need to reevaluate our legal and policy frameworks and i read that and i was just like yes let's do it <laughs> let's go let's change society's narrative about sharks i felt like you hit some really strong points um but let's let's lay just a little bit of groundwork for listeners um just some some of the basic science why are sharks important absolutely so they're an apex predator meaning they're at the top of the food chain uh they don't have any predators above them and they help regulate 
the entire ecosystems that they're part of, whether that's a coral reef, um, mangroves, and even the deep sea, the deep ocean, they remove some of the diseased or injured fish populations. So they're crucial to species diversity, genetic diversity, and like stabilization over time for those fish populations. Um, and, you know, often folks will think, oh, if we remove the sharks, there'll be more fish and more fish for us to fish. <laughs> and it's the opposite. We need sharks. They regulate the entire health of the ocean, honestly, they're just a keystone species, meaning that if you protect them, it's going to lead to greater protection of the entire ecosystem that they're part of and all of the other species that they inter interact with. Yeah. And you mentioned you live in North Carolina, right? Yes. I believe that it was North Carolina that learned that lesson the very hard way um, because they were trying they, they thought that they thought oh, we get rid of the sharks we'll have more fish and they got rid of a bunch of sharks i'm totally blanking on the year um but sharks are the predators of like skates and rays mm -hmm. and skates and rays eat scallops and so without the sharks the, the skate and ray population exploded and they ate all the scallops and there was a scallop fishery that had been there for a hundred years and it completely collapsed wow Wow, yeah. I didn't even know that. I got to look up what's going on in my own my own state. It, it was a while ago. I think it, yeah. I think it may have been around the time you and I were born. Um, but it's it's a really it's a very tangible lesson. Yeah. That like, you know, everything that's in the ecosystem is probably there for a reason, right? Mm -hmm. And if we mess with it, we can't always foresee the consequences. Yeah. Um, and apex predators are critical to a healthy ecosystem upon which we depend. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not just an ecological, you know, importance for the ocean, for the ecosystems they're part of, but it's a socioeconomic importance for humans because they help maintain these vital fisheries, support local economies and human sustenance. So it's so important. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really important healthy ocean healthy us exactly. <laughs> like, super connected um which uh brings me to the rights of nature movement um can you just like i mean i know it's a super big topic and it incorporates multiple movements right um but can, can you give it like a, a very brief yeah. <laughs> summary i know that's a big ask <laughs> no worries it's essentially a legal movement to recognize that nature has inherent rights just for existing that they have that nature you know whether that's an ecosystem all species has rights to exist thrive and evolve so we give rights to businesses and corporations obviously we always must recognize human rights nature also has rights and it's a global growing movement there's over 150 rights of nature laws policies treaty agreements, judicial decisions in well over 20 countries from local to national level. So there's no one size fits all method really that we've seen, but it's a critical, I think, example of how we can put new values and, and put our values for nature into law and policy to show we're going to protect and restore nature. And not only do we recognize that nature has these rights, but that we have the responsibility to protect nature and protect nature's rights. 
Oh, yeah. Probably one of my favorite movements. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so a teeny bit more background. Um, we did talk a little bit about how many sharks are killed every year. Um, but let's, uh, let's elaborate a little bit on the different threats that sharks are facing. Absolutely. So the biggest threat to sharks is overfishing. So that's both direct targeted fishing of them for meat, fins, um, derived products like liver oil. And the second part of that is indirect or accidental capture of them called bycatch. And whether that happens in nets of tuna fleets or bottom trawling. So those are the overfishing is the biggest threat. And then beyond that, they're also threatened by habitat degradation. So pollution for destroying mangroves and seagrass beds or degrading them. These are key ecosystems for their reproduction, for foraging. And finally, compounding on all of that is climate change. So if our ocean water is rising in temperature or acidity, that affects coral reefs. It can help or it can harm and change their migratory patterns and really change the way that they interact within their ecosystems, whether you know, from those ocean temperatures or salinity or acidity change. Yeah, that is, that is a lot yeah. to, to address, to try to save sharks um, and thus keep our ecosystems healthy in general. Um, One thing it could be cool to share like in the show notes is some colleagues I know at Saving Our Sharks Foundation just funded and led research um, that led to this extraordinary discovery surrounding bull sharks in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. And the study was actually just published this month and it, it was cutting edge like technology and it's a submersible ultrasound machine thing <laughs> that confirmed that these free swimming bull sharks are pregnant. And it's crazy. Like they're confirming that these bull sharks it was like for 12 years of research that kept coming into the area in the winter season, appearing larger, are in fact pregnant, um, which is, you know, critical to knowing for conservation, you know, birthing grounds. But I just think that also just kind of provides empathy for them that they're just swimming by them and seeing their babies by this ultrasound technology. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> oh my God. I'm really excited about it too. Send me the link. I'll definitely include it in the show notes. That's fantastic. I will. Um, yeah, and the whole, the whole like, you know, protected area conservation thing, it's so important. So it is important to know where they give birth. Um, right. You know, I I did some research on oceanic white tips. Mm-hmm. It is so hard to protect them because they're oceanic. Right. Like that's just international waters all the time. Right. You know, like there's like, we're like, okay, like no one specific country is like, oh, they're in our jurisdiction. We can do a thing. Um, yeah. and, it, and I actually found that to be a really unfortunate loophole in um, the, the Endangered Species Act, the ESA, because like they have generally have to be present in an area. Right. You know, and you're like, well, we know they used to be present there. And like hammerheads, for example, are very location loyal. So they'll go back if 
they can't like if it's safe if they can even if they haven't been there in decades they will go back and have babies there um but we can't get anything protected if they're not there right now and i'm like that's a little that's a little shoot yourself in the foot yeah that's problematic (laughs) (laughs) that's not that's not working out for me (laughs) i wonder um how you know under the new biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction like bb and j treaty um how marine protected areas, you know, on those international waters could help protect oceanic white tips specifically. That's a good research question <laughs> for someone That's out a, there. Yeah. Hey, someone, we got a master's project for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, check out the high seas treaty that just dropped and oceanic white tips. <laughs> um, they really need protection. They like weren't even mentioned at the last huge gathering of all the tuna fisheries in the Pacific. Yeah. Like they didn't even talk about them and, and they're, they make up a lot of bycatch. They're at this point um, what's called functionally extinct in the Gulf of Mexico, which is devastating. And they used to be like really, really abundant. They're like the shark, all the sailor stories about sharks when you're out at sea, it's oceanic white tips, right? There used to be so many of them. And they're curious. They got the nickname Sea Dogs because, like, they hunt in packs and they want to know what's up and they're checking you out, you know, and, like, playing around the boats. Um, Totally, totally down for scraps when, like, you know, things are falling off fishing boats, you know. And um, But there's just, I think the IUCN Red List estimated their population globally has plummeted like 98%. I know. And I just, it's so, it's so sad to me. And they're so, they're so cool and interesting and smart. And um, I mean, part of the reason their population plummets is because they do hunt in packs often, you know? And so anytime you get a, a group together and they all get caught in the same net, that's that. But, and, and they're beautiful. They don't have the typical like triangle shape for their fins. It's like rounded at the end and their pectoral fins are super long and they just glide through the water. And of course, you know, they got white tips and stuff. But anyway, that's my little my little soapbox for one of my favorite sharks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we gotta do something about that. Gosh going into the the juicy bits of your paper now that we have this groundwork um i want to talk about how the rights of nature movement can help um all of these issues that sharks are facing um which is is kind of broad in itself but also like what approaches are there to restoring the shark populations and then a little bit later we can get into like how to improve the relationship between humans and sharks definitely one one key thing is uh, currently most environmental laws have a reactive approach rather than a proactive one. So we're not, we're trying to save a species once it's already endangered. We're not <laughs> trying to do a you know holistic proactive approach that keeps species from even getting to that point. So I think that's a key difference with rights of nature is it's proactive. It's saying we're all part of this ecosystem. We're Humans are part of nature. We have to live in balance. We can't cross ecological boundaries, planetary boundaries, and we need to respect that and how we govern human activities. 
And that can transcend into so many different areas, especially for sharks. It can be recognizing the need to protect their habitats, their full life cycles. It can be stronger protections for them. So modifying gear use from fisheries or creating stronger legal standards for ecotourism and just how we interact with them. So I think there's a whole just comprehensive way it can transcend into all these different aspects of how we govern ourselves and how we protect and restore. And I think that's one other key difference is rights of nature helps recognize that we have to restore species and populations, that they have actually a right to be restored. One case study I looked at in the paper is Panama, because in 2022, they passed a national law recognizing the rights of nature. And then just this year, they passed a national law that recognizes the rights of sea turtles and their habitats. So it not only requires protecting sea turtles from um, bycatch, it requires finding new marine protected areas to protect them. And I really thought, wow, like if we can do this for sea turtles, what if we applied this for sharks? And what would that look like? Because if we value nature and we put those values into law, that recognition of rights helps us know we need to protect. How do we need to protect? And that we have this responsibility to protect and restore. Um, and then even since then, you know, when I was writing, it was a bit more theoretical. It's comparing and and contrasting and analyzing and seeing how could this apply. But actually a recent law just about a month ago in the Loyalty Islands province uh, located in the French territory of New Caledonia recognized legal personhood of sharks and sea turtles. Um, so it's going to be really crucial, I think, to see how this is implemented, if it helps increase protections for them. But I'm really excited to see how it works in practice. That is really good news. <laughs> That's super cool. I think that, you know, the concept of legal personhood is really interesting. People who aren't saturated in in legalese and legal talk, they're like, well, how can you be a person if you're not a person? But, you know, corporations are people under the law. Um, And it's the purpose of that is so that there, there are certain responsibilities and accountability. Um, and so when you when we think about personhood for nat, like, quote unquote, nature, like sharks or rivers, like in New Zealand, um, it's it's about recognizing their responsibilities. Right. And we have different responsibilities for human beings too. The responsibilities of a child are not the same as the responsibilities of an adult. So the law treats them differently. And so I think it's important for listeners to understand that legal personhood for sharks is a way of recognizing a shark's right to live, a shark's right to swim, and a shark's responsibility to take care of the ecosystem in which it lives. It's not necessarily we're saying sharks are people now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, that seems like just having that understanding would be a very strong beginning to improve the the relationship between humans and sharks. Yeah, I think that's what I'm really trying to see how, you know, this this approach could help shift that relationship because 
I think if we recognize that they have value, that they deserve to be protected for their own sake, and we codify that into law and policy, that'll help lead towards this, this shift in our relationship with them. One right now that's based on fear or based on them being resources um, or just economically valuable to recognizing that they have value for their own sake, that they're critical keystone species that deserve to survive and thrive. And I think that overall, like, can help reorient this relationship we have with them and the broader ocean ecosystem as a whole. I find that we've been so much in the mentality of like, you know, oh, just try not to do too much harm. Right. Which, and that always implies that like, well, if humans touched it, then it's bad because humans are bad because humans aren't part of nature and you like you can't get there without having that um perspective that humans are somehow separate and so i i really like that it's reuniting us because it's also showing that like human beings can do good for our habitat we can live in harmony with our ecosystem and we can do so in a way that you know the quality of life for all life increases and flourishes um and it's going to look different in different places because different ecosystems different biocultural values uh and so i'm wondering uh you know in my mind a holistic approach that would create like effective laws or policies or regulations um you know they would they would not do the hierarchy of, you know, humans are the best thing ever and nature is second. Um, but they would balance the needs of the human and non-human community. So, for example, if there was an ecosystem that, like, desperately needed an immediate complete ban on shark finning or on, on shark fishing, which would include that horrible practice, um, <laughs> then you know the the policy would then have to also figure out something for the shark fishers right what can they do instead how can they transition their skills to a different career that over you know where the skills overlap like ecotourism reef monitoring um there's all kinds of things right and i'm wondering if since it it feels early ish in the movement even though it's been going for quite some time um if we've seen anything like that and i suspect that the philippines might be an example with the whale sharks yeah yeah absolutely it's definitely still an emerging area of research i think seeing what works and what is a just transition for local fishers um that is one example you brought up with oslo whale sharks in the philippines where it was transitioned to an ecotourism um, economy and there was a great result in, you know, an, an economic resource that came from that, but also supporting local fishers. And they were seeing the abundance of whale sharks increase. So it was an all around, you know, um, from what I can tell, <laughs> a great, you know, example of that. But I think, like you said, it's still really emerging. Um, and new studies are coming out. I recently saw one that occurred in Indonesia and 
one of the world's largest fishing, uh, shark fishing nations. Um, and they were studying and interviewing just two localities and they found that fishers supported, you know, having a compensation for agreeing to reduce their catches to zero. So if they're compensated for the lost income that they would have received, they will actually, you know, protect sharks. And that's okay because it needs to be a just transition. They need to be sustained and to have everything they need to survive too, these local communities. So I think it requires a lot of sectors to be involved. Um, it definitely needs funding for local and subsistence fishers, often in less developed countries that don't have necessarily those resources. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've even seen in the Galapagos where actually only artisanal fishing is allowed and all shark fishing or harming of sharks is prohibited. But I just read that the um, USAID, so US Agency for International Development is working with Congress to provide over $9 million um, to help address illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, IUU fishing um, in the Galapagos. And they're partnering you know, with the government of Ecuador to help bring this economic development to include all stakeholders, including local fishers. Um, so it, yeah, it's really multi-sector approach. It needs all levels of government and definitely needs funding and in a lens of ethics to show that subsistence fishers need to be part of the solution. Yeah, I think it's interesting how um, when people start approaching a really complex problem like this, you know, where like multiple sources are the issue, you know, in the beginning, we talked about threats to sharks, which is, you know, direct fishing, but also bycatch and climate change. And, you know, like, there's so many things, you know, getting tangled in nets, you know, they're just like, name it, name it, it's probably an issue. Um, that people tend to assume, at least in, in my experience in the United States, People tend to assume that all of the other, you know, stakeholders are competitors instead of collaborators. And I feel like that gets everybody off on the wrong foot, right? But when you're like, oh, well, you know, the fishers, like, of course, they probably love the ocean. They spend more time on it than most people because it's their job, you know? Like, I am sure that they would love to see a healthy ecosystem where they can catch what they need, right? But if they can't catch what they need, they still need to eat and they still need to have income. And, you know, like, most of the time, no one is necessarily um, out to get the environment or like out to be bad. I mean, I'm not going to speak for oil companies, but um, you know, there's, there's some issues there. Um, but most of the time, like especially local communities, like they're a huge part of the solution, and they probably have a lot of, if not traditional ecological knowledge, a lot of knowledge about that particular place especially if they've been fishing somewhere for 30 years, they can tell you about the shifting baseline. You know, they can tell you how the weather has changed. They can, you know, they can tell you all these things and that is really invaluable information for finding solutions. Absolutely. I think whenever um, 
scientists and conservationists are working with local fishers, it, like you said, it's so invaluable because they are experiencing these changes. They are part of the solution, absolutely being interacting with these species every day. And part of the issue with shark fishing is it's kind of a boom and bust um, pattern that over time, if you keep fishing, you're going to start losing some of those larger shark species or even individuals, and you're going to start fishing the smaller and the younger ones. Um, so I even read in Panama over, I think over 96% of the hammerheads caught there are newborns or juveniles. So then, yeah, it's awful. It's like, that, <laughs> I know. That super broke my heart. <laughs> well, and the thing is like, they're, most shark species are so slow to reach maturity that like they're not even they're not even given the chance to reproduce and thus that's how you get the boom and bust cycle because you know a few make it to adulthood and they have babies and so then you've got this boom of woohoo you know everything's fine and then all of a sudden there's none left because none of yeah. them made it to maturity yeah, they're highly and, yeah. highly vulnerable to overfishing like you said they they're slow to mature and then they also produce few offspring so they just can't keep up with mm -hmm. this direct fishing that we're doing and honestly no species could so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's a lot and ah uh, okay i'm not gonna get started on the whole like small fishers versus the huge conglomerates that are on like these massive boats that are football field sized and they can on the boat and then ship yeah. things away yeah, like be, that's insane yeah, let's just be clear industrial fishing um, is the real problem <laughs> let's just put that out there yeah, like, we're not i'm not gonna harp on it because i'll get up on that soapbox yeah. and i won't come down but industrial fishing bad small scale fishers woohoo exactly uh, <laughs> so so before we go down that rabbit hole let's just make a hard left and um talk about some yeah some hopes that we have what do you what do you hope to see in the future for sharks um and any any level of future near future yeah. or far future you know future? i think it, it is really important to to have this level of optimism too. And um, even in the last few years, we've seen really amazing wins for sharks. Um, even this past November uh, at CITES, global leaders added 97 species of sharks and rays to appendix two listings. So that means we have to limit the trade of these species. And that's essentially the global agreement that really regulates how endangered species are protected. So that was huge. And I think that's a huge global effort. And now we you know, get to see how we can implement this and ensure countries are following it or have the resources to follow this commitment. Um, but what I really hope is that this narrative will keep shifting. I sometimes get glimpses of that. And I think that's an effort I really wanna work in my career and, and, and dedicate to is shifting that narrative. and recognizing that they are misunderstood and that they're invaluable to the ecosystem that they're even, you know, we always talk about them as sharks and, you know, pretty broadly, but they individually have different personalities in, within their species. They have individual characteristics. Um, so I think anything we can do to provide empathy for them and 
help us relate to them more is so critical. Um, and that's something I, yeah, I'm starting to see a shift and I'm really excited and hopeful that it continues. Yeah, me too. I um, found myself rolling my eyes at yet oh, another Meg <laughs> movie poster. I was just like, great. That's, that's going to be just as good as Sharknado. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're launching this podcast on International yeah. Whale Shark Day. And I'm just like, yes, yes. Like, I mean, maybe we need the big gentle giant filter feeders to invite people in to the other sharks that are maybe a little scarier but it's true like they they are totally misunderstood and it warms my heart every time i see like some super cool video of come across my social media feed that's like helping change that narrative like i saw one of this guy who was just i mean he was it was in an aquarium um but he was like dancing with the shark and they were twirling you know and then there's this great story of this marine biologist she took a hook out of a shark's mouth one day and that shark yeah. keeps coming back and hanging out with her when she is diving that reef and Aww. it like it told its friends <laughs> and like now all, all these other sharks with hooks in their mouths come to her and she just she just takes them out she's like the, that's magical you know the, <laughs> shark hook lady now yeah right like how magical is that and it tells me too that um you know we really don't know as much as we think we know about them which is something you did emphasize in your paper is that you know there's a lot of data deficiency about sharks and i think especially about their intelligence and the fact just the fact that they have personalities yeah. like I think is so cool and in a way I think it, it might make them more accessible to the general public um, after the traumatic childhood experiences we all had with Jaws <laughs> and not being able to swim Maybe in the pools next anymore. Maybe watch it and they won't experience, experience this at all. Oh, I know, but it's such a good movie. <laughs> That's my no. love-hate relationship with Jaws. Um, but yeah, I mean, okay, so so I um I'm trying I originally started this podcast thinking, oh, I'll finish every episode by asking, you know, the guest what they think is like the biggest ocean issue that we're that the oceans are facing. And then I was like, well, most of them are already talking about it. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> why they're on the podcast. <laughs> so um, I don't know if you want to mention some yeah. other issue that you think is really important, or we can just go straight to how can our listeners be involved? <laughs> how can they help save sharks? Yeah, I might, I might mention, I might mention no because pressure. I think it's definitely connected. Um, this issue with sharks and, and shark fishing is really representative of our whole relationship to the ocean, I think, which is based on overexploitation and just viewing the ocean as a resource that we can t constantly take from, whether we're overfishing, we're exploiting any benefits the ocean provides, or we're drilling or destroying ecosystems. And I think all of that, of course, compounds with 
climate change and, and plastic pollution, et cetera, and add in all the other issues. But I think it really comes down to how we value and view and care for the ocean. And if we can change that and shift that, that overall will reflect a better, like more harmonious relationship that we can have with the ocean. So that's also my hope <laughs> that we can get there. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you on that 100%, um, most definitely. All right, so, so what can our listeners do? How can they be involved? How can we save sharks? <laughs> Tell us, don't Rachel. Have all the answers. Um, I think really like keep learning and, you know, sharing information um, with family and friends, with, you know, anyone really, <laughs> um, just to help change that narrative and, you know, support organizations or scientists and policymakers, anyone that's doing that work, um, share what they're doing and, I think it's important to get involved, you know, as you can, whether that's a coastal cleanup or it's outreach to your public representatives um, to help protect sharks. And, and I, again, I think most importantly is just help to change that narrative and share your love for them, you know, grow your love. We usually have to learn a little bit about a species in order to feel that value to, to share that love. So I think they really need some love. <laughs> So I would love to see people do that, share information about them. Mm, that You know what? That makes me want to start some kind of shark love campaign, like a little art contest or something for That'd listeners. Be amazing. We need that. Yeah. We so need that. Yeah. I'm going to have to mull that around in my mind. Um, but also you mentioned support organizations. I'm going to include in the show notes a link to the earth law center which is where rachel works and they do a lot for the rights of nature movement and obviously rachel's been writing about sharks <laughs> so you will be supporting uh shark lovers there and i'll check and see if is there a specific shark campaign happening it is right in now? the works <laughs> Ooh, it is in the works yes okay. yeah i would be really happy to share more information soon um partnering with a lot of really amazing organizations in in the shark conservation space to exactly do that try and shift the narrative that's fantastic okay so go to the show notes people more information to come <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an absolute pleasure to chat with you about our mutual love for sharks and your fantastic paper. Uh, can I also link your paper in the show notes? Yes, please. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, thank no. you so, so much. Yeah, thank you so much. This is amazing. And I really appreciate what you're doing and, and really trying to engage listeners and help them, you know, gain this ocean literacy that we all need. Hey listeners, quick little update for you. Since recording this episode, the podcast has indeed launched an art contest to spread shark love. So check out our Instagram and get entered to have your artwork featured on our page and free entry to our first get to know the host virtual meeting. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to check out our show notes. Catch you on the next wave.